uh, we're hoping by God's grace that this might be, will be the first of many more times we have organizations like CBMW on the West Coast. Organizations like CBMW are so important because, you know, you wouldn't have thought a decade or so ago we'd be having, maybe two decades ago, we'd be having the conversations we do today, do, are you? I mean, would you? Uh, and in God's providence, organizations get raised up to help the church think more biblically about things that by and large were largely assumed, and as I'm going to say tonight, because they're largely assumed, it's easily lost and hard to defend. And so, I'm very grateful for the work of CBMW. If you're not aware of who they are after the, uh, uh, the, during the break time or after this evening, make sure you stop by their table, get information, uh, sign up for their journal, visit their website, cbmw.org, and get equipped because you're rarely going to find a, a touchstone so, so relevant as gender and human sexuality. Uh, uh, today. It's, just, it's everywhere. Sexuality and gender is a hot topic, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, uh, on the one hand, that, that's no surprise. You hear it everywhere you go. You can't get away from it. The news stories, the controversies, the new findings, the new publications on that, the things are fluid, and the press that goes with it. On the other hand, the fact that such a obvious and fundamental aspect of our shared humanity that we would have such controversy is simply mind-blowing. Who would have ever thought something so settled like our gender would be so unsettling for our culture? Who would have thought that a decade, two decades ago? But this presents us with a huge opportunity. There is an upside to all this confusion, isn't there? This is an opportunity for the Christian to bring the clarity and sensibility of the gospel into a very confused world in a very relevant context. But there is a problem when faced with these kinds of opportunities of bringing the gospel message to a new culture that all Christians have experienced throughout time. And, and in fact, we are facing a new culture, aren't we, in Western society? This is, in fact, a post-Christian, post-modern culture. Now, it's, it's not new, it's been around for decades and decades, but I think we are beginning to feel the full impact of this new cultural shift more clearly than ever before. Now, the problem I was talking about that, that Christians can face when we have this opportunity to bring the gospel to a new culture is, is this, is that beliefs, beliefs that, are, uh, that have been assumed by the established culture, because they're assumed they're often not clearly defined or developed enough so that when there is a cultural shift of new beliefs that come in that don't share those assumptions, people in the established culture have a hard time responding to the challenges. And so they're not quite sure how to make sense of it or how to engage it. Now, often in those kinds of situations, Christians will do one of two things. They'll either quietly give in to the surrounding voices of the culture and allow the gospel to go silent, or they're going to circle the Christian wagons and demand even louder that the culture still have their assumptions as well and make the gospel obnoxious. Now, I think we can agree that neither of those options are very appealing, right? But there is a third option when dealing with this situation. That third option is to see the topic at hand through the lens of Scripture, to ask questions that we may have thought never needed to be asked before, and to challenge our own assumptions as well as assumptions of the new cultural belief. 
and figure out what Scripture teaches on these things. And in doing so, we recognize basically what Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch statesman, said. He reminded us that every topic, every issue, every field of knowledge is subject to God's authority because, after all, this is God's universe, and every inch of it belongs to Him. And so it is with the topics of gender and human sexuality. So, my presentation this evening, uh, The Purpose of Gender and the Glory of God, that title may seem odd at first. You may not have thought about those concepts going together. You may even be uncomfortable with topics like sexuality and God coming together. If that's so, it may be because you're operating out of the wrong assumptions, perhaps shaped more by an evangelical tradition than a radical, God-besotted view of reality, because in that view, in that understanding of reality, sexuality and God's glory go together beautifully and wonderfully. So, for our conference this evening, I have the privilege of starting us off, and in the seven or eight hours we're going to spend together, we're going to talk about all kinds of things, gender, marriage, homosexuality, transgenderism, God's design of physical intimacy. We'll trace the theology of man and woman throughout the Scriptures, but I want to give you a disclaimer, okay? Although we are going to spend seven hours thinking about these issues carefully, this weekend can at best only be an introduction to the topic at hand. We will not cover nearly a portion of what needs to be said, nor discuss in in, in any great detail all that Scripture and the Christian tradition have to say about gender and human sexuality. And there is a lot to be said on those topics. But even a journey of a thousand miles has to begin with one step, correct? So, with my presentation, I want to take that first step with you tonight. I want us to ask a very basic question. What is the purpose of gender anyway? And what does it have to do with God's glory? Now, to answer that question, we need to answer an even more basic question. Does gender actually have a purpose? Does gender actually serve a purpose? Now, in an increasingly secular culture, this is an uncomfortable question to ask because questions of purpose are teleological in nature. In other words, they assume a design, they assume an intention, they assume a direction. So, and that begs the question then, who is the designer? Who is the intender? Who is the director? It quickly becomes obvious in a culture that's trying to take off the shackles of any sense of a a submission to God, why questions of purpose become increasingly uncomfortable. So, uncomfortable with questions of purpose, a society like ours will say, look, gender doesn't have a purpose. You're asking the wrong question. Gender merely is a function. It's derived. There's no teleology to it. It doesn't have a grand design. Its its whole design is just to complete its own action. Gender doesn't have a purpose. It simply has a function, and that function is purely biological, sexual compatibility to ensure that the species can procreate. So, there's there's no purpose to it. It just has a function. It just happens to be the case. Now, if that is your view of gender, that it's completely a matter of function, 
And it's nothing more than evolution's way to get the species to procreate and perpetuate the species. Then it's understandable why culture is changing, isn't it? I mean, if the difference between us is nothing more than plumbing, wiring, and parts, then once you satisfactorily deal with those issues, everything's up for grabs. From that point of view, then it becomes understandable why retailers like Target are doing everything they can to take away unnecessary uh, biases or social definitions of male and female as they did in their move to allow for transgender bathrooms and their lesser-known action to get rid of uh, boy and girl toy categorizations. Yeah, as if it wasn't hard enough to buy your seven-year-old niece a toy now, now they don't even tell you where the girl's toys are located, right? But that is Target's point. There is no such thing as girl toys and boys toys. They're just toys because there's no such thing as girls and boys. It's a social construct. Those concepts of boy and girl, gender, are social concepts. We don't need those anymore. I'm not saying I agree with this view at all. I'm just saying it's understandable why retailers and culture is drifting this direction because their view of gender lacks any sense of purpose. Gender is just a function to procreate. And so let's get rid of all the other constructs surrounding it. It makes sense from that point of view. The problem is there's a lot of research coming out that debunks that point of view. From anecdotal op-ed pieces like this one I found in the LA Times this past March entitled, The Futility of Gender Neutral Parenting, which states boys are going to play guns and blow things up and girls are going to play house and host tea parties no matter how hard you try to deny them this. Now, if you know anything about the LA Times, it is certainly not a conservative newspaper. So I give them great credit for running this op-ed piece who was written by somebody who was an advocate, by the way, of gender neutrality. Both this woman and the paper came to realize this is simply not working. So from op-ed pieces to established journals and research papers like this one, from the Journal of Child and Infant Development last year that was entitled, Preferences for Gender-Type Toys in Boys and Girls Age 9 to 32 Months. I bet you Target really wished they saw this journal a year ago before they made their move, right? Or this amazing finding in the Journal of Neuroscience and Biobehavior Review entitled, A Meta-Analysis of Sex Differences in Human Brain Structure, citing that the human brain is radically different between the genders, and that difference is foundational to understanding why men and women are so different. It turns out the genders are not just different in their biology and anatomy, but psychologically, neurologically, emotionally, and developmentally, they are radically different from one another. Now, if you've had your kind of cultural ears open, you know this isn't, nothing, this isn't anything new. We have known this for decades. But this latest research in the current political climate makes these discoveries all the more important. But here's my point. As helpful as this research is for making the case for a traditional understanding of gender, this isn't good enough. And here's why. I believe that the traditional understanding of gender itself is not sufficient. 
It's not sufficient. If we are content to let neurologists, psychologists, and biologists define the parameters of the debate, even if it favors a conservative perspective, then we as Christians have failed the larger culture because in the end, the answer to the question, what is the purpose of gender, can only be fully answered theologically not neurologically, not biologically, not psychologically. It's only answered theologically. All these studies can tell us is how male and female are different. Only Scripture can tell us why male and female are different. Does that make sense? So all these studies, they favor a traditional point of view, and that's great. But if we're going to serve the culture as Christians, that's not good enough, even if it agrees with us, because it doesn't tell us why. It only tells us how we're different. Only Scripture tells culture why men and women, male and female, are so different. So let me answer my opening question. Does gender have a purpose? And here's my, I guess, my thesis. Yes, Gender does have a purpose. The purpose of gender is to be a reflection of the triune God in His being and character, and in doing so, display His glory in all human interactions. Now, that's a mouthful, okay? So, we're going to leave that on the screen. But I think this, this accurately captures what gender's about. Now, in order to answer that, in order to do this this evening, I need to talk about three things the triune nature of God in His being and character, the creation of mankind as male and female, and then how humanity, both male and female, display God's glory. So those are the three things we're going to need to talk about in my presentation to answer this question. Now, just to give you a heads up, conceptually, the heavy lifting is going to be on points one and two. Point three, in a lot of ways, the rest of the presentations this weekend are going to unpack what that looks like. So a lot of the heavy lifting is going to be on points one and two. Let's look at them one at a time. The triune nature of God in His being and character. Amazing. At the fountainhead of the Christian faith is this amazing being, God. In Psalm 90 verse 2, it tells us that before creation was, before time existed, before anything we know that makes up this reality was here, God was. Listen to what the psalmist says. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Furthermore, Scripture tells us that this being is not merely one, but three. Now, time prohibits me from getting into a full discussion of the doctrine of the Trinity, so I'm just going to limit my points to uh, just a couple of points to, to show you that that's what the Scripture teaches. Throughout the Scripture, divine actions are ascribed to every member of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For example, in John chapter 5, verse 21, in John chapter 6, verse 63, all three of them are ascribed with the amazing ability to grant life, Okay. Divine attributes of omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience are ascribed to all three, Father, Son, and Spirit, equally. Finally, in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, the Holy Spirit is called God. In John chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus is called God. And the Father, in John chapter 6, verse 27, is called God. So, we have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all being called God, 
But Deuteronomy 6.4 and James 2.19 clearly tell us there's only one God. The inescapable fact is that the overarching teaching of Scripture is that God is three persons, each person is fully God, and there's only one God. This has been the orthodox teaching on the Trinity since the beginning of the Christian faith. Now you're sitting there going, okay, great. What does this have to do with gender? Remember, the purpose of gender is to be a reflection of the being and character of God. So let's take a look at this. This being, God, shares a unity in that each member is God. Yet there is a diversity. There is the Father, there is the Son, and there is the Holy Spirit. And these three exist beautifully in community with each other. So at the very fountainhead of the Christian faith, we have a being that helps us understand the very essence of humanity. There's a unity in diversity existing in community. That is what the being of God is like. There's a sameness, sameness of essence, yet there's a distinction, very distinct. They're not collapsed into one. They are their own person, and there's a relationship, and this is reflected in the realities of the male-female gender creation. But there's a second aspect of this triune God that we need to understand that helps us understand male and female and the purpose of gender, and that is the character of God. We talked about the being of God in that He's three in one, unity, diversity, and community. Now we need to talk about the character of God. And within this amazing relational web of unity, diversity, and community, what we see is thoughtful, loving, judicious authority working in beautiful and tandem harmony with joyful, glad-hearted submission from God the Son and Spirit. So the Father exercises this beautiful authority and loving authority over the Son, and the Son and the Spirit have a joyful, glad-hearted submission to the Father. And we see this all throughout the Bible. We see it in salvation. So John 3, 16, the Father sends the Son. In Galatians 4, we see that the Father sends the Son and sends the Spirit, right? The Son obeys the Father in John 12, 49. As a matter of fact, in John 4, 32, Jesus says it is His very food to obey the Father and His will. So in salvation, we see this wonderful relationship of authority and submission from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But we also see it in creation and recreation. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, the Father creates through the Son, and the Son sits at the Father's right hand. The Son glorifies and submits to the Father. We see that clearly in John chapter 5, verse 30, John 17, verse 4, and beautifully in that passage, Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. So the Father loving the Son by exercising authority, the Son loving the Father by glad heart and willingly submitting to His purposes as the Father and Son love each other from eternity past. John chapter 3, verse 35. John chapter 17, verse 4. From Jesus Himself saying, Father, remember the relationship we had together. This mutual relationship of love happening in the Trinity. So from the very being and character of God, 
we are seeing two essential truths that directly impact our understanding of gender as a reflection of God Himself. In this being, there is a unity, a sameness, but a diversity. There's a distinction. There's this community, a relationship with one another. And in His character, there's this thoughtful, loving, judicious authority and a glad-hearted, joyful submission. So we talked about the being and character of God. What we now need to discuss is how God has chosen to reflect Himself in the pinnacle of His creation. For that, we need to go to Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have it on the screens behind me. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, verse 27. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Now, tomorrow morning, Dr. Hamilton is going to develop the theology of man and woman throughout all of Scripture, so I'm going to restrict my comments to just to make my point now. Historically, when theologians and, and scholars and pastors talked about the image of God in man, they did so in one of two ways, in a, in a broadly collective way or a very individualistic way. But we've never asked the question from an engendered way. And I think that's what we see in Genesis 1.27. I think that that's what the verse… Look at the verse again, verse 27. So God created man in His own image. Notice the repetition for emphasis. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Now, something you need to be aware of, because we've lost this in our culture, man in the Hebrew, ha'adam, the man, Adam, the word we use, simply means the earth creature, man. Man is not male. Ha'adam is male and female. According to Genesis 1.27, the earth creature, Adam. So God created this earth creature in His own image. He created him. The next phrase repeats that. This earth creature is created in the image of God Himself, but this earth creature is not merely male. The earth creature is male and female. Genesis 1.27 is saying that this male-female thing called man images God. See, in our culture, we have lost the understanding of man relating to humanity. Part of our cultural reaction against patriarchy and all these things, we forgot that man does not mean necessarily male. Ha-adam is male-female. This creature images God, not just collectively, like how humanity images God in the way that we have reason and intellect and will like He does, not just individually how you or I image God in that we're forgiving or kind or merciful, but engenderedly, how male, female together image the Creator. Let me unpack this a little bit more. When God created this species to reflect Him, this species known as Adam, and the Bible uses the word Adam in many ways. It refers to a specific individual, but it also refers to the entire human race. When God created this species called Adam, He was created in a binary engendered fashion. In other words, two, two 
as male and female. In order to image God more fully, God, who is in a relationship with Himself, who is in community with Himself, man, Adam, necessarily had to be two, male and female. Here's why. Because a single person cannot take counsel with themselves, right? I mean, you do see people talk to themselves, but when they respond to themselves, something's a problem here, right? When God created a creature to image Him, a single person cannot take counsel together with himself like God does. A single person cannot love, display love and sacrifice for another if there is no other like God does. So when God wanted to create a creature to image Him, it necessarily had to be a unity of essence, but completely independent distinction. And so when God created humanity, He made us male and female. In short, our gender itself is deliberately given to image God because in God there is the unity, diversity, and community. In humanity, we all share in this room the same essence of our humanness. We are one that way. But every one of us is distinct as male or female. And because of that, we have this beautiful relationship together. Now, I realize this, for some of you, have maybe have never looked at it this way. But this is why when the culture shifts, and views begin to change, we don't buckle in the theological knees. We don't have to circle the theological wagons. No, we go back to Scripture and ask questions that maybe we didn't even know we had at the time, and we see that Scripture was already answering the questions that we didn't know we had. We see that exactly with Genesis 1.27. When the culture brings us new questions to re-examine the Scriptures, we often find, excuse me, we always find, that Scripture has already provided the answer before we even knew they were questions. And the same thing we have with Genesis. According to the very first chapter of the Bible, gender was created to reflect God and His character and to be His image. Now we need to answer the last question, how humanity, both male and female, displays God's glory. Now remember, uh, I was talking to somebody earlier tonight. I said, I'm not sure if I'm preaching a sermon or giving a lecture, so this is kind of in between. So I don't normally use this language when I preach if you're on Sunday mornings, but I'm, I'm making an argument based upon a thesis. This thesis is to remind you that the purpose of gender is to be a reflection of the triune God in His being and character, and in so doing, display His glory in all human interactions. So, so far, we've talked about the nature and being of this triune God, and the significance in creating the creature to bear His image as male and female. To more fully display these realities, this creature, this creation known as man would have to be more than one. They'd have to have a fundamental sameness, we talked about that, being human. They'd have to have a shared humanity, yet a thoroughgoing distinction, which we have in the fact that we are gendered, male and female, and science is now in troves coming out saying how radically different we are, even though we're radically the same thing, and yet beautifully fostering this interdependent, complementary relationship, just like in the being of God Himself. But furthermore, this creature would also have to display 
his character in the roles and relationships they share as found in the Trinity. So it's not just in his being, but it's in his character, this loving, deliberate authority in tandem with a joyful, glad-hearted submission. And see, the fall recorded in Genesis chapter 3 made these roles a constant battle. The woman to usurp the man, the man to try to dominate the woman, which is why in Ephesians 5, the woman is called to submit and the man is called to love, reestablishing the creational norms that were corrupted by sin. Now, I'm not going to say anything more on that. Grant is going to talk about how how marriages are uh, redeemed in that way, so I'll leave that to him. So, like the father, the male gender of man exists or exercises loving, judicious authority. And like the son, the female gender of man exercises joyful and glad-hearted submission. When both do this for the benefit of the other, the character of God is displayed for all to see. One of the clearest examples of this dynamic is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, when Paul writes this, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. You see, this this authority submission structure should not surprise us because this is the very structure that's embodied in the Trinity itself. Friends, God loves, God embraces, God exercises rightful authority submission relationships. Listen to what theologian Wayne Grudem says. Authority and submission between Father and the Son and between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is a fundamental difference or probably the fundamental difference between the persons of the Trinity. They do not differ in any attributes, but only in how they relate to each other. And that relationship is one of leadership and authority on the one hand and voluntary, willing, joyful submission to that authority on the other hand. Friends, when men and women relate, not based upon cultural standards or feminist or chauvinist ideals, but rooted in the character of God Himself, it is a hierarchy without hubris. It is an authority without oppression. It is submission without being servile and love that pervades every aspect of life. Scholar Bruce Ware writes this uh, when he talks about gender and God's character. There is a unity and diversity and identity and distinction, a sameness and difference like melody and harmony. These are the qualities of life that mark the rich texture of the life of the one God who is three. This male-female relationship most vividly displays God's glory in the context of marriage, but also in the local church. In essence, the two institutions, the two institutions that God established to display His character and glory to all the world. In the remainder of our time, tonight and tomorrow, we'll really tease out some of the implications of what happens, what it means, how we flourish when this design is followed, and what happens when it's not. Friends, we want, when we think about gender and sexuality, we want Scripture. We want God's Word 
to guide us, and not culture, not even evangelical culture. We want to go back and say, what does the Scripture teach on these pressing issues so that we can conform our lives more closely to them? And as many questions as we are going to answer this weekend, many more are going to arise. Like I said, this is the first step of a long, God-honoring journey to reflect Him more in our lives, especially so in our gender roles. So I encourage you, as we take this break that's coming up real quick here, get some coffee, get some donuts, get some refreshments, get some fellowship, use the bathroom, do what you need to, check out the resources we have out there to be equipped. May God be glorified as we seek to reflect Him more in our lives, in our families, and in our churches. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the riches of Your Word. Lord, we thank You that even as we think about gender, we find as we study Scripture, there is so much to be said about it, that You have so much to say on the issues at hand that guide us, that it's not a biological oddity. It's not just something You tacked on to the end. It was a deliberate purpose to reflect Your being and character, and in so doing, show who You are to the watching world around us. Father, forgive us for when we have abused our authority. Forgive us when we have thrown off submission as an S-word rather than seen it as a way to model the Son. Father, help us as men and women to display Your character in all aspects of our lives, and we'll thank You for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.